Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the Journey Within Podcast. Got a special guest and good friend Matt Gindorf with me here today. And for those of you that don't know, Matt was actually the uh, the mastermind or genius behind when I did the North America Waterfall Slam. Um, he was the one that was doing all the planning, which was, I would probably say, the most difficult part of it. And most recently, he did all the planning um, for my South America Waterfall Slam, which uh, I have to admit was a success because it was only two trips, one to Argentina and one to Peru. I was semi-planning on uh, four trips two to Argentina and two to Peru. So Matt, thank you for all, all the hard work you do behind the scenes on all these slams that I do. Uh, we'll get into talking about what, what that truly involves, but I, I know all the work and bouncing around and following weather patterns and where the ducks are moving from time to time. Yeah. Well, thanks Mark. It's <laughs> uh, yeah, it was interesting. when we started that whole thing, I mean, that was our biggest thing is, you know, unlike deer or anything else, these things move. So, you know, as much as my planning on this side, your tenacity and ability to just get up and go, not tomorrow, but right now was, you know, had a lot to do with the success of that whole project, both of them thus far. So, yeah. and I'm just guessing there's, there's probably more on the horizon. Maybe a few more on the horizon. My wife calls that <laughs> um, being stubborn or hard headed, but yeah. it's tenacity when, when it's used elsewhere, but stubborn yeah. or hard headed at home. Yeah. <laughs> well, Call it what it yeah, is. Yeah, does that works. does that sound familiar over at your house? Yeah, no, yeah, it's a lot the same. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Matt, usually how I treat these is is I know there's some people that are listening that that know you probably book with you at WTA, but I kind of like to just dig in to start with your background, how you got into hunting, um, your experiences, and so forth. So when when you started, I mean, how long have you been hunting? Boy, I mean. You know, I guess, and I'm sure it's a common answer that you ask a lot of a lot of the people because we all have the same passions, and that's why we tend to be in or around, you know, this whole outdoor world. But you know, as long as I can remember, you know, as as far as um, you know, I grew up in the lakes area of Minnesota, and it was really, um, 
you know, it was really just, we had quick access to, um, lakes. I mean, I grew up within, you know, two miles of five different bodies of water that I could be on, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we would, everything from, you know, the old red and white, uh, red and white bobber and grabbing the scraps from extra from dinner and going down and hoping to catch a bullhead as the sun was going down to, you know, my dad was a passionate wing shooter himself. And, you know, I didn't really get into archery until I was really introduced into that when I was a senior or freshman in college. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, we were a typical family. We just, we fished throughout the summer and, you know, we, we hunted, we were, we grew up grouse and duck hunting. So we, we grouse hunted when we probably shouldn't be cause it was really thick. But the only reason we went grouse hunting was because duck, we had to get that done because duck season started soon. Yep. And then we went right into deer season. And then, you know, I was fortunate to have a dad who had the passion for white geese and just waterfowl in general. So then we, he would, at a young age, he'd come and pick us up and we'd be over in North Dakota or we'd be in Southern Manitoba or somewhere where the birds were, you know? So was it prime, was your dad primarily a, a, a wing shooter? You said, yeah, yeah. He had a, he had a, he, a screaming desire for things that decoyed. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll just say that, you know, it's, I would say that was his, you know, his bread and butter. Gotcha. So and do you he, have bird uh, dogs growing up? Uh, we didn't. No, I didn't actually get into bird dogs until um, I left. I mean, that's probably why I did, because I always wanted, you know, a lab or, yep. you know, something in the waterfowl world. I thought that was a missing piece in my in my hunting, you know, adventures. Is So when I left, we grew up with, you know, I had two springers, but they, they weren't hunters. You know, they they weren't uh, back then. You know, we like I said, we grew up in the country. They were just family pets and mm -hmm. and uh we would say yeah you know let's take tony and cleo that was their names I had three of them tony cleo and then those they had a litter one of them the the runt of the guy that they couldn't we couldn't get rid of so we ended up naming him booger it's <laughs> <laughs> a good dog so, name yeah. so at one time uh you know it was uh we just, we, yeah, the dogs would be with us when we're grouse hunting, but who are we fooling? They're not, you know, they were just pieces of the pieces of the adventure puzzle. They may occasionally step on one to get it up. Yeah. yeah. But you know, what the, what the heck is that? So yeah. we, um, but when I graduated, you know, from high school and, and, and went on to, you know, kind of see what life was about. Um, it didn't take me long to grab my first Labrador retriever and, actually turned that into a little career one after I was done traveling international, but worked and, and trained dogs professionally to place in South Dakota for a short time and ran a pheasant lodge there. So the dogs have always been a part of my life. That's good. And, and this is one, everybody that's listening, you're going to find Matt's life experiences or, or history in the outdoor world, extremely fascinating um, from time spent managing lodges um, in different countries and so forth, the training dogs all the way through to, to what he does now. So of all the places that you've been able to hunt, Matt, around the world, mm. what's been your, your favorite spot so far? Oh, I should have, uh, you know, I, gosh, I don't know. I think that's part of, I think that's part of why I do what I do, you know? And I think that's one of the, I have so many cool adventures. I mean, uh, 
I've, I mean, I've got stories back, you know, back in the day when I couldn't shoot and, and was shooting snow geese over diapers when nobody thought white <laughs> geese were cool. You know, I remember those little pieces of those stories. Uh-huh. Um, and those are the ones that stick. Um, you know, I guess, you know, I've got a 14 year old and a 12 year old. Um, we got lots of cool stories as anybody does with any, you know, with their buddies or their dad or whatever. But, you know, I took my kids the very first, the second duck hunt they ever went on in their life. Uh, they were both in car seats. I drove them 17 hours to a place in Saskatchewan where I had found this area way back when, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's uh, 50 miles to the nearest um, hotel. So there's not, you know, there's just not pressure there. I mean, I think in the 10 plus years that I've hunted there, and this was probably, well, it was 10 years ago when we did this. Um, you know, I don't, I've, the only shots I've ever heard or seen another hunter is from my farmer buddy who's past shooting honkers as they fly over the farm. <laughs> you not- know, so that was pretty cool. You know, that, yep. that one sticks in my head. I mean, uh, you know, I got, I got six years old in the back seat strapped into his car seat and I got, you know, four years old strapped in his car seat and we're heading to a different country, 17 hours. And, you know, I remember uh, grandma asking, boy, do you really have to take them that far? And I just said, yeah, yeah, I do. They're going to see things up there that I don't know if I'll be able to put them on here in the states so if i'm going to start this passion we might as well do it right <laughs> yeah no, exactly That's yeah. It. what'd your wife say yeah you know my wife she she trusts me and she's i've just i'm super lucky in that category it just she just is really uh understanding of my passions and and sometimes i need to do better job of making Instead of we need to run out and check this pothole, I should probably just go in on date night. But she's she's awesome. She just uh, so she you know when I made this plan together, she's like, okay, well I guess that's what that's what we're doing. That's what you're doing. <laughs> so great. yeah, very lucky. That is that is awesome. I would say that's probably my my fondest memory as to date. You know, and I couldn't think of a better one than getting your kids. I assume that they're hooked now. With all the no, they do. Yeah, it's almost too much now. It's there like you know, if we're not uh, for perfect example, we now live in South Dakota. We used to live in, in Minnesota. So they could I mean, when they were old enough, meaning like a couple winters ago, you know, the, it was a common babysitter for them was to, you know, hand them a hand them an auger and and a vexlar and drop them off at the access while I was on the way to the office mm-hmm. and just go explore. Yep. You can't really, can't really do that here in South Dakota, but you know, they'll get on their bikes with, it doesn't matter, you know, some worms and drive down to a local pond and spend the whole day catching, you know, six inch chubs that are in there. I mean, really how yeah. exciting is that? But they don't care. So yeah, they're right up with it and we're, they're painting decoys and we're getting ready for early goose season and shooting. But Luke, just my youngest just got a new bow. So he's all getting fired up for, and Grady is uh, getting fired up for archery season. So, but you know, it's changing because they're, they're, 
shoulders deep in sports and sports nowadays no. isn't that it isn't like what you and i used to play you no. know no it's not travel team this and all that type of stuff so yeah we just hope that um the good news is in the fall we got lots up lot lot more options down here than we did in in living up north you know we got ducks and geese and pheasants and bow hunting and an easier access and longer seasons so, too it's yeah it's great yeah no, I know it seems to, and it matches up better with the uh, fall season, meaning, you know, when football's over in November, yep, that's when our ducks really start to get here. Yep. We still got a month where in Minnesota, there's a really good chance you're done duck hunting by Halloween. Just everything's moved through. All depends on yep. that weather. It does. No, I know all about the, all about the sports. I guess I didn't until my youngest is the one that's fully fully engaged in it so we had i mean just getting back from british columbia had practice last night we've got yeah. a camp today saturday we get off and then sunday we've got specialty training and then next week we got practice monday through friday in grand rapids which is an hour and a half for me each day so it's nine till three each day then we get two days off and then shoot the season starts after yeah. that so i mean then it's then it's real go time this has just been kind of relaxing up until then well, what we've what I've found is I can't wait for the season to start. It's all the off season start just to keep up, you know, because yep. it's just far. It's it's competitive. It is, and if you're and if you're you're if you've got a kid, I mean, I think any any parent will do the same. If you've got a kid that is passionate about it and wants to push the envelope and see what uh, how good they can be, well, you're going to do whatever you can to put them in those chairs to you know let's see i guess i'm all in <laughs> I, I i look at it like michelle's the the one that's that's fully in my middle middle daughter is uh full into dance which is a whole completely different mm -hmm. thing but like they, i've heard that's the worst oh they, listen it's not inexpensive <laughs> and holy time oh, consuming I mean. holy time yes. consuming but like yeah the passion that they have for it like i look at it like what else could they be doing sitting on their phone at their house or watching mm -hmm. tv or, or stuff like that they have a passion and they want to chase it like i've in my mind, it tells me like that's a great first step for as they mm -hmm. get into college and as they get into adulthood of like they have a passion and what they're finding out is if they go and chase it, they can actually be pretty darn good. Like the, yeah. the more it's one of those things, the more time you spend it, just like hunting, the more time you spend in it, the better you get just with practice. And it, it's one of those things like I I wish I'd have had those opportunities that my kids had yeah. of that extra, the extra stuff. But it just wasn't there when I was growing up. Like it, it, it was well, just on the cuffs of being there. Yeah, and, and I think we we both probably agree that there's so much stuff that comes out of just competition. Oh yeah. So many so many other better things mm -hmm. in life, meaning how to persevere, how to get along with others, how to challenge yourself, how to push your own your own body and mind to a point of uncomfortable and how do you handle uncomfortable. Yep. Yep. You and know, I, so there's so much other stuff. And I know you, I know you coach your kids and I coach mine. And it's one of those, I love coaching them because it's, it's, it's not so much the time on the court. It's after that's over and you get the time in the car on the way home. Because mm -hmm. that's where you can really have the one-on-one -on -one conversations of, you know, you see what the practice is doing or, hey, like this happened and I get it, but we got to fight through it. And you get those one-on-ones. Mm -hmm. I think that's why we're in a relationship with the kids is so good. It's not, it's not because of the coaching time actually on the floor and with the group. It's the one-on-one -on -one to and from the gym that mm -hmm. I look at is just so key. I, I was really interesting because, you know, we're like, we're, I've got one child here where now he's in the system where parents can't coach. Oh yeah. They, they don't allow it. 
which is which is a good thing. It can be a good thing and a mm-hmm. bad thing. Or and then I've got one that's you know they're two years apart. So now is when I really get to dig into his side of the game, you know. And yep. and my old my oldest, you know, him being fourteen. There's a lot of stuff going on when you're fourteen. Oh yeah, from all over, <laughs> so, all over. Yeah, so, yeah, we'll just and so you know I remember just telling him, hey, you know, this, our thing, yeah, we we can do our private little stuff on the side to get better and and all that type of stuff. But it's, you know, the ball's in your court, really. And so, you know, to watch him come and do what he's doing baseball-wise, meaning he's practicing and he's not getting what he wants out of practice. Mm-hmm. So he comes and him and I start doing stuff together and to watch him commit to that and – do things different than maybe the people are around him and just have him making that decision was huge, not just for baseball, but that just shows independence and shows all that stuff that as a dad, that's what you're hoping. You're hoping you get, you know, you're raising something that, uh, you know, can come up and and listen and go, okay, I I get what you're doing and I I see value in this, but it's not exactly what I want. And I need more Mm -hmm. because I want to see what I, you know what I mean? And it's, all those, that's the stuff. It's all that stuff around athletics and their ability to make decisions and grow. And yeah, that's, that's the cool stuff all about. And that like that, stuff. I think that translates, like it translates so good to the outdoors too. Yeah. Hunting or fishing, totally. like the same, the same thing. Like think about the first time you sat in an archery stand mm-hmm. to what you're alone. doing. To, yeah. Alone to what, to what <laughs> it is now. I mean, like I, I still remember sitting up there at 12 years old, no idea what I was doing. scent was wrong i think my tree stand was like eight and a half feet off the ground so i was basically eye level with the deer as it came in like like i look back yeah and you thought you were like super hot yeah i was like man i can't get any higher than this i I mean i could barely step up to the stand i go i go back to you know um taking the boys out let's say we did our very first field set for ducks or geese or you know sit and get the decoy set and you know a lot of times you can you pull the truck up and you unload and you do all that stuff and we're getting set and okay, you guys do the blind. I'll do the decoys. Mm-hmm. Here we go. All right. Now we're set. Let's get unload our gear. Let's get it in the blind. I'm going to go park the truck. And I remember, I remember, <laughs> I remember saying, okay, dad's going to go park the truck. I'm going to be up on that tree line. You're going to be able to see my taillights. It's dark out. Right. Like who's, you can, I know nothing's going to happen to them. Yep. So you, you met, you let them make that decision of who's going to stay here. You want us, you guys stay here. I'll go. Mm-hmm. First time in the dark in the wild. They're like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> my young, my youngest throws his headlamp on. He goes, yeah, I'll keep brushing the blind in. And my oldest is like, yeah, no problem. And then I walk around the side of the truck and get in and I'm going to drive the truck up and then I'll walk back. It's, you know, maybe a half mile away or whatever. Uh-huh. All of a sudden poof, door comes open. He jumps in yeah. and my, and my youngest, my youngest, he sit there in the dark all day long. Doesn't phase him I at mean, all. Doesn't phase him at all. My oldest. Yeah. He's, he's walking with that. Yeah. He's like, I he's right. want, want to make sure you park in the right spot. Yeah. 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 I, I just, you know, and so, yeah, it's, you know, those, those growth moments, just like you're, you know, only I'm all alone in the wild. Yep. And I remember, you know, whether you turkey hunt, right? Oh yeah. You get you got both kids in tow. 
I would walk, you know, first couple of times we walk, you did it, I did it, whether you're carrying them or you're holding hands because mm-hmm. you're in the dark in the mm-hmm. woods because that's a scary spot. Yep. And by year two, you know, I'm 75 yards ahead of them. Yep. And then all of a sudden you're just, yeah, that's how they, that's how they grow. But that's, uh, you're right. All those in decisions that they make as young people, whether it be in athletics or in the outdoors, they correlate it. They, they intertwine a lot. Yep. They do. They do. So I know you just got back from a, a trip that I'm actually looking forward to do. That's bird hunting in Africa. So mm-hmm. for, for everybody that, that's, that's following kind of what we've been doing the last couple of years, it started with the North American Upland Slam um, mm-hmm. with my Brittany dogs. And that was 19, then 20. Um, did the waterfall slam kind of in between just how seasons overlapped. It was really the 22 season, but it, it's three consecutive years. We've focused on doing some sort of, some sort of slam. And, and what I really love about the, the slams is I'm just all in like in Matt, same way with you and the planning is like when, when we dig in and say, we're going to do something in a single season, one, it puts a time limit on it. Two, it makes planning and travel so much more key. Like, and I really just get tunnel vision of this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it happen one way or the other. It starts here, it ends here. And I just find like compared to the trips to where I go and film for five days and then come back, like for whatever reason, the slam is just that much more rewarding. It's, it's that much more engaging. Like I'm, I'm into it so much more. I just, I get a lot more out of it than a normal, just five day go and film or a weekend go and film here, which is why I fell in love with it. So we've done three now. We did the Upland Slam in North America, the Waterfall Slam in North America, South America, Waterfall Slam. So just so anybody that's listening, yes, there's going to be a lot more as we go through because guess what? There are a lot more countries that have Waterfall and and Upland and it be it South Pacific, be it Africa and so forth. And at the same time on the WTA side, it really allows us to to fully engage in the areas that we go to and, and work with the great people that are there. So like eventually Africa will be coming up and Matt was, Matt was actually able to just go over there and experience some of the upland hunting and, and waterfall hunting. And you don't, a lot of people don't think of Africa as, as a bird hunting paradise. You think of it as a big game hunting paradise. Um, but hearing from Matt, when he got back, I can't, I can't wait to hear the stories, Matt, where'd you go? What'd you do? Yeah. I mean, Africa, I've been, one of the, I've been to Africa multiple times and I've had, I've shot some birds there, you know, and, the, but it's always kind of been a, uh, it's always kind of been a, you know, we're big game hunting and, and when you've been there as many yeah. times as I have, you know, they become friends. So your buddy, you know, your pH or whatever. I remember him asking the first time I was the first time I bird hunted down there, which is probably, I don't know, 10, maybe 10 years ago, he said, he came in after we were kudu hunting one day. He said, Hey, you, you ever, you ever thought of shooting geese? You, you, you like shooting birds? And I went, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I'm all in on that. And so he said, uh, and this was in the Eastern Cape and he had a cornfield or whatever. And, um, 
Yeah, so we went out and I experienced that. We shot jippos or Egyptian geese and we shot spurwing geese right. and we shot, you know, some African shell ducks and other yellow bills and that type of stuff. So that really intrigued me on, I didn't realize that there's that many birds down here. Um, so I wanted to go down and dig into it even more. And when you're driving around big game hunting, you see guinea fowl, you see Franklin's, you see spur fowl, you see all that other stuff. So, yeah, I, t- I really dedicated this trip just to birds. Um, I kind of started up north and, and went to the west and then ended or went. Yeah, I went a little west and then ended up to the east looking at different areas. And, man, there is just anytime I go to a destination, it really like what's the story? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, when you think of Argentina and you got a really good snapshot of Argentina, but when you think of Argentina and since the inception of wing shooting in Argentina, the, the number one thing that comes to mind is volume, right? Yep. Cause it was built on the backbones of dove hunting. And, you know, do you hear common stories back in the day, the thousand bird club, or, you know, come experience Argentine dove hunting doves of plague proportions, and you people have seen the pictures. So no matter what happens in Argentina, no matter what happens from now to the end of time, mm-hmm. as long as Argentina bird hunting exists, any lodge that's not a volume based lodge just simply isn't you're missing the marketing ploy there. Yep. And so when you think of Africa and I'm down there and you know, the volume meaning the numbers of birds and it's hard to match Argentina, but uh, I mean, it's as quality as you can get, but what, what screams to me is the diversity and the close proximity of all the diversity. Mm-hmm. Meaning for those that don't know, you know, you've got Franklin's, which Franklin is, you know, we'll, we'll just call it, it's an upland bird that's hunted over pointing dogs. There's like three to five different species of Franklin. Then you have spur fowl, which are a lot like Franklin, but they have, I mean, cripes, these little buggers got hooks on the back of them like an oscillated turkey. I mean, they're just crazy. Ah, yeah, just big. And then on the waterfowl side of things, you really have two different kinds of geese. You've got Egyptian geese and spurwing geese. They play together. They're, you know, they're a lot like, you know, they're cornfield egg-based bird. Um, And then there's probably a half a dozen different um, uh, duck species. And then, but then you still, you, we still haven't gotten into guinea fowl and then you still haven't gotten into sand grouse and the story of the sand grouse. So there's just a ton of really, really cool um, species that are very geographically, we could say geographically delicate, I guess, yeah. you know, you yep. could, we could be hunting spur fowl right here and not see this type of another type of upland bird and but we have to drive two hours that way and we're into the western side of the kalahari and all of a sudden now we're in sand grouse country you know and um and so there's you know there's two or three different species of sand grouse so just the diversity of that game and of that of the wing shooting sport down there that's really what made me want to dig into it and that's It's not a volume game. And I'll go back to what you're talking about, the slam stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, when you and I first started talking about this whole slam thing, it was, uh, you know, we've, we've hunted, you know, we in, 
in passing throughout your duck career, you shot a hooded merganser yep. and it was just because it came to the decoys mm-hmm. and you shot a gadwall and you shot a this species, that species, that species. But when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it and go, ah, I need a ruddy duck. Yeah, exactly. Who would, who would have ever thought, or I need a hooded merganser or I need a bluebill. Who would have thought that you would pass who would have thought that you would pass greenheads because there might be a bluebill coming? Nobody. It's if you, you know, say it that you way, it I mean? sounds so, crazy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not. I don't know. Oh, ooh, look at that greenhead, ah, or look at that pintail. I, I already got one of those. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it adds a whole different element to it. Just like when you and I were in Argentina those few days together, we would be. You know, we we'd have let's say we had six eight species and okay, we're looking for a widgeon today or we're looking for a shoveler or we're looking for a blackhead or we're, mm-hmm. so we're, you're, you literally, you forget about the, oh, here comes the eight pack of silver teal and yeah, they're landed nine feet in front of the blind, mm-hmm. but we didn't shoot them yep. because we're looking for a white faced tree duck and there might, I hear one off of the distance. Exactly. It was cool. So we're, when, we're just watching yeah. that, watching those as we're editing them up here for linear and then, and then our digital release is coming later here. It's crazy footage we got though with Justin off to the side on those yeah, like totally. on those ones when we were waiting for the widgeons and we had the yellow bills that I mean literally I think they may have In touched our face. heads. Yeah, they touched our face as they were coming through and like all those ones and you're like, We're just waiting for the widgeon. And that would it's, never happen here in North America. Like if I had if I had one of those groups that did it in the morning here in Michigan, would have made my morning. Just one group that would do mm-hmm. it like that. And there it's just group after group after group after group like the amount of ducks in argentina is just like i can't say it enough like it's overwhelming like when you get to when you get to a pond and they all take off and there's 500 birds that take off and you're in you like my past experience here if you're hunting a, a pothole in north dakota or something like that and they all take off and and they don't circle back right away you're like oh, gosh i hope oh, they come back oh man hopefully they come back later <laughs> But there yeah. it's like they take off, they're gone, but don't worry because there's another 500 coming from the other direction that wants to get in on that pond too. If you guys are looking for the best seat covers on the market, you got to make sure to check out Rough Tough. I've had them in my truck now going on four years and they are bulletproof. Make sure to check them out, roughtough.com. Leopold offers the best optics in the game, bar none. I personally have their Santium binos and never go to the field without their Pro Guide spotting scope. I've got a Mark V on all my rifles, and also don't forget they've got some awesome eyewear as well. For more information, visit Leopold.com. If you're looking to book the trip of a lifetime, make sure to give the team at WTA a call at 1-800-755-8247 or check out our website, WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com. And, and so when you take that approach, and that's really the approach that I took going to Africa was to look at the diversity, to mm-hmm. look at the terrain. What are, How do we need to conduct these hunts? Um I found myself, you know, dog goes on point, you flush it. It's a, it's a, you know, a Swainson's Franklin, right? Uh-huh. Oh, I've already shot two Swainson's. I'm not going to shoot that one. You know, with yep. like, because the next point could be a red wing. It could be a gray Thanks. wing. It could, it could be a crested Franklin. It could be a spur fowl. It could be a helmeted spur. It could be anything. Yep. And that's the, when you, that's the cool part about Africa going back, you know, what's the, what is the difference? How do you talk about Africa bird hunting? Why doesn't it get the fame that Argentina does? I think it's because a, 
you know, the big game world is definitely that's the bread and butter and yep. how Africa was built. Mm-hmm. And, and B, I think when people think of international wing shooting, they instantly think of, you know, Argentina doves, Argentina waterfowl, Mexico doves, liberal limits on waterfowl. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the international bird world is built on volume where Africa is built on diversity. I mean, like I said, you've got spurfowl, Franklins, guinea fowl, three to two different geese, um, five different species or whatever of ducks. And then you still have rock pigeon. You have uh, sand grouse. You have three different species of doves. And all of that is mixed. So if somebody goes down there, the volume, if you, yes, you have the ability, the volume is there. But I mean, Another time I had a dog on point walking into a point and a hundred yards to my left, I got six giraffes standing there staring <laughs> me, watch, watching this, watching this point go down, going, what are those guys doing? <laughs> I mean, so just Africa in itself has an allure for sure. But uh, the diversity of birds and, you know, we're starting to do the whole, like, okay, what are the hundred, what are the huntable species of birds, yeah. upland and waterfowl? We're looking at a, a bigger list than you and I have ever tackled. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it, a it was more, super cool. A little more super challenging, cool. but it'll still be fun. Mm-hmm. And, and Africa does a really, really good job. And this is what I think people don't realize of, I mean, they've got limits, you know, you yep. can only shoot a couple of these and, you know, three of these and they have a daily limit that's much more like the states in mm-hmm. the management of their bird species than say an Argentina does. Yep. No, they actually you know, have so, very strict limits and a lot of people yeah. don't know this, but once you get in Zimbabwe and the other, the other park areas, the quotas they have on big game are just the same. Like sometimes yeah, for exactly. a season, you can only shoot one sable. In the area, yeah, they might get a quota for this area that only says, "Hey, we're only letting you have two of this." Yeah, and it's like four hundred thousand acres. And you get two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's why they have so many, so many game, so much game rich environment in those areas. And it's consistent. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. It is very consistent. So, so let's talk your past experiences. Okay. So you live quite a quite a life. Like, I mean, you've been an outfitter in Argentina. Like, exp- just explain what you've what you've done since you graduated college. I did a, you know, I it was one of those. I was fortunate. I played a little bit of little bit of baseball after college, and uh, just figured out that riding around on a bus, um, overnighting on a bus just wasn't uh, wasn't something. There had to be more out of life than this. How, how long were you in the minors for? Uh, I played, I, I dinked around a little bit with Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, but most of my time, which was only two and a half years, three years, was in uh, a league called the Northern League, which was like, you know, the St. Paul, probably the most legendary team in that would be the St. Paul Saints. Okay. You know, that's where Jack Moore, Jack Morris from the twins, he pitched there. Jason Veritek, when he, uh, you know, didn't like who he was drafted with, he went and played there. Um, you know, it was the equivalent of double A ball, but back then it was, you know, it was the St. Paul Saints, the Duluth Dukes, the Sioux City Explorers, the Winnipeg Gold Eyes, the Sioux Falls Canaries, those five teams. Now this league is, 
you know, the St. Paul Saints are now owned by the Minnesota Twins. It's their AAA affiliate. And so I did that for, for a while. I was, I was just a pitcher. But when I got done doing that, I had to take two classes in college. And by the then they were just nothing classes. But I had to do that to get my degree. So I got that. And by the time they collected or corrected my last test, I remember I was back in the day of paper maps. I had a big giant paper map open um, at a Perkins in Edmonton, Alberta, about ready to really kind of make the turn north because I was driving to Alaska. Uh So I went to Alaska and did some stuff up there and and did some fishing and some hunting and some little bit of working to make money. I went from there back home. Um, had an opportunity to go from Alaska to Argentina, um, but did not go at that time and kind of stuck around home a little bit and then got another opportunity to go to Argentina and work at a waterfowl lodge. So I did that. And that really was, that was pretty cool. I mean, I learned a bunch. It was my job was kind of to bring the North American influence to this Argentine, you know, another one of those places, just like we've experienced a bunch, you know, there's a ton of game, but the hunt presentation needs some. Just some fine tuning. Yeah, just some fine tuning. Yep. You know, you see that in a lot of different places. It doesn't matter if we're talking all kinds of different species you've got they've got the game they're just not sure how to hunt them yep and how to and how you hunt them is how what protects your resource and gives you the ability as an outfitter to conduct you know from the first client to the last client having a great experience meaning not just being in the game and all that type of stuff so i was doing that in argentina i came home um did a little stint with cabela's and uh, then left Cabela's and um, ran a pheasant lodge in South Dakota. And then I would, and train in dogs. And then, you know, in our, while that's going on, I used to, I'd leave in December and I would guide waterfowl hunts from the Platte River, Nebraska, you know, up through North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just kind of a freelance go guy with my spot uh, because there wasn't, you know, we trained dogs during the summer and then, you know, by the time hunting season came around, we would be busy with our own dogs at the lodge. So all the client dogs then would usually go home in August. Yep. And so there wasn't a lot of the day to day, you know, routine of training, you know, Jerry's lab you know, those client dogs, because we wanted them home with the dogs, home with the owners to, you know, you know, they needed to take, take over at that time. So, yeah. And then that, and then I just, uh, I was on a, I took some time off and went to Kodiak Island and brown bear hunted uh, with a friend of mine from when I was living up there, came back to the lodge in South Dakota and had a, a client that had drawn a South Dakota waterfowl license and uh but he was bringing a bunch of his construction guys and that type of stuff out just to do some pheasant hunting and i said well heck let's go duck hunting in the morning and by the time we're done duck hunting those guys will be up and then you can go pheasant hunting with them and plus i trained his dog so it gave his dog an opportunity to do some running and when we got done with that 
you know, I told, told him about the brown bear hunt and this type of stuff. And, and he said, Hey, what are the chances of you arranging that hunt for me? And I said, well, I can. And I ended up going on that hunt with him and we killed a really good bear. And that's kind of what spurred me away from kind of like baseball. There's got to be more out of life than yep. riding around on a bus. And I kind of looked at dog training as much as I love the dogs and that type of stuff. There's got to be more out of life than pinching a dog's ear, telling him to hold. And so we, uh, yeah, that's where I just kind of left the lodge there and called a buddy of mine up in North Dakota and said, Hey, he lived on a farm by himself. He's an engineer up there and we we're college buddies. And, and, uh, I said, um, or I, we had met when he was in college, I was actually working for Cabela's and I'd hired one of his friends and we became good friends. But, uh, I called him and said, Hey, you want a roommate up at the farm? And so I moved up to North Dakota and that's where I started my own consulting business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then it's kind of just slugged my way through that for a bunch, a bunch of years. And it was, uh, you know, had the opportunity to join the WTA team. And I had known Jason, our director for, for quite a while. I mean, before when I started my consulting business, he was running, you know, the, uh, the, the Pheasant Lodge in North Dakota. And I used to send him clients and we became really good friends. And so we've always been in the industry. You know, I suppose I was in the industry maybe two years before him, at least in the seat, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I remember when he called and said, Hey, what do you, you could use another senior consultant. What's your thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, it's all about, you know, it's all about when, when I've been doing it as long as I have been and been very fortunate enough to do it that long. It's, it's more about who I do, who I work with than what I'm doing. Yep. And I, I think one of the initial conversations you and I had was, it was more about who you are, who I am than, you know, what are the expectations of me and you every day. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so that was, that's what was important to me. And, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, I may be selfish in this, but damn, it's a pretty good team at WTA. Like the, like the group of consultants, like it's, it's just not, it's not like I, I get compared to other companies like it. It's not a group Mm -hmm. of sales guys. That's not what, that's not what it is. Absolutely not what it is at all. Like they all, everybody gets along. They have the best interest for the client first. Like, that's what makes it so successful and why we've been growing like crazy because we just do the, we do the right thing every yeah. day and everybody loves well, it. It's, it's, it's hard. I, yeah, don't get me on that soapbox cause it'll sound like I'm better at selling WTA than I am trips. I just, I, I think the, I respect, and I'll just talk from where I, who, what I am in the company in regards to how I look at the company that I'm involved with and fortunate enough to be part of is I am surrounded by a really good, really talented group of people. And this is coming from somebody who's, I think, uh, I've probably been in the industry. Tim and I are probably the two that have been in it the longest in a, in a very, you know, testosterone driven, Mm -hmm. egotistical industry. It's, I've got a really, really good, talented group of people and I'm humbled to be part of it. They really are. And what, 
especially from and just like the senior level, right? These yep. guys that have been there for a long time, you not nobody's got an ego. Everybody's there to help. Everybody is, and you said you know the the interest and the desires of the client are what comes first, and you know that's a. A lot of people say that. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you that it's true because you can call me and I've been very fortunate to have traveled the world and multiple. But if I don't know what you're after or I believe somebody's got a, a deeper depth of knowledge in that category that you want to do, or maybe I've done three quarters of your sheep slam for you, but now you want to go hunt Ibex. Well, I'm not your guy. Yeah. But you know what? I'll hand you to a guy who's going to treat you just like I did on the first three legs of your Grand Slam. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's really, um, it's a it's a very 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 unique group of people, and I'm really fortunate. And we've, you know, like you said, we're growing and and we're going to keep growing and we're going to hammer the the pedal down and we've got some young guys in there that got some serious snart um <laughs> they do, they do. And, they've got a lot of piss and vinegar a ton and it's funny because you know we're we sit back and we look and you're like yep it's good though it is if they didn't have that drive if they didn't have that they're still it's 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 way more competitive down there than it is um at, uh, we'll just say at that, and I by no means is there a diversity in levels. I'm just saying in newness in the industry, mm -hmm. you should be excited. Yep, they are. And you may not realize it, but you're part of something really, really awesome. Mm -hmm. But right now, you're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's good. I want you to think that and because you are and because if you weren't, you wouldn't be part of it exactly it just there's a bunch of and it does not just and i'm not i'm going to clarify mark i'm not just talking about the quote-unquote consultants right it, it's everybody in that office from accounting to admin to you know it to marketing pick i don't pick it's they're all awesome. Yeah. Every top to one of them. Top to bottom, any, any category in there. Like I, like I have this conversation with my dad all the time, like, like admins, the amount of years that they've been there, the experience in, in the history that they have and in, in not only doing what they need to in the office, but talking with clients when they have to our accounting department, like here, here's like, I can't do anything with the accounting department. If I try to, to not turn something in, grace is all over me. Like I'm just like everybody yeah, else. Listen, every and, and all of our guys listening to this one are like, "Oh yeah, yep, Grace will definitely, definitely get on you." Like yeah. everybody, everybody yeah. knows that. Like it's, it's one thing. Like everybody thinks outdoor companies kind of, kind of run on, you know, one foot on the ground, the other one's kind of up on a up on a box, like make fall at any time. Like that's not how mm -hmm. we're set up. Like we're we do hunting and fishing trips. We have owned outfitters, but I mean, we also play in in products that are for sale that a lot of people don't realize mm -hmm. we're, I mean, we're mm -hmm. as diverse as can be in the outdoor world. Cause we don't want to go anywhere. Like this is our, this is yeah. our stronghold. I don't see myself doing anything else until I retire at 70 or however, 75, mm -hmm. however old I was. I want to do the same thing as my dad. He worked, worked a long time, keeps the mind active body going. Like, and plus to be honest, I live, I live a dream job right now. Like I get to go and, mm -hmm. and, 
hunt and film hunting trips for basically half the year. I'm on the road for half the year and that's what I do. I get to call that work. Like I, I I can't say that I I would want to do anything else besides that. The, you see so many different businesses in, in the, we'll just say in the outdoor world that are built on passion. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and passion at some point, if passionate enough, business has to take over. Right. Yep. I mean, that businesses get your business savvy, business smarts, whatever has to override the passion. You got to get over the fact that um, because it is if the sooner transition you can make from. And I try to tell the new guy, the, you know, somebody new coming into the consulting world is the sooner you can make the transition from. I can't believe that I get to go to Argentina and look at it from the business side of things mm -hmm. and, and be, um, and feel fortunate that, yeah, you know what, no matter how terrible the day is, how bad this is or how much you screwed this or how big of a victory you had on this side at the end of the day, no matter how bad it is or how, cause it comes at you quick. Yep. I mean, and, and just, we don't, it's not like we, 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 we assist a lot of folks when it comes to traveling around the world each year. And it's very, very high paced. Plus the other pieces we have that are, that, you know, you may be responsible for, but the quicker you can get over the allure of, I get this essentially hunt and fish for a living mm -hmm. and turn to the business side of things is that's, that's when you start to turn to being successful in your chair. Right. Yep. And then, and then the other thing is, is just, um, no matter how bad it is, we're all fortunate to where we do get to shut the door. And if you just sit down for a second and go, Hey, listen, at least today, I, I am very fortunate. I got to talk to people about hunting and fishing. I got to write a blog about hunting and fishing. It's not like you have to go and do this, that you don't enjoy. And then your escape is hunting and fishing. Yep. I mean, that's, that's where we're lucky. And yeah, Hey, one of the biggest transitions and the hardest things to do is to find somebody with the outdoor knowledge, the depth of outdoor knowledge that has the passion that can make that transition. And you'll see some people that come into this world that are very passionate driven. I think, yeah, being a consultant would be awesome. I get to talk to people about hunting and fishing, but there's a lot of there talking to people about hunting and fishing to do it successfully at the pace in which we do it, which is a lot different than I think the way others approach it. It takes a lot of butt time sitting, staring at a computer. Yes, it does. So that's where I say the passion, although your buddies call and yeah, you may, you know, like myself, I'm, I'm, I work from my home office. Um, my buddies call and go, Hey, you want to go shoot greenheads in the morning? Could I do that on a Wednesday? You betcha I can. For sure I can. Should I do it? No. I got 110 emails. I got three other things I need to get done. And if I don't get those done, it's a stack up. So you have to have the discipline to say, I can't do that. This isn't all about hunting and fishing. The business side of things has to come in in order for you to be successful. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. Very good point. So as we transition here, let's let's talk yeah. planning. So obviously with your time down in Argentina, 
I mean, it kind of it, it gave the, the the South American slam a, a real step up because you just had the the wealth of knowledge from being in country for so long. Mm-hmm. But let's talk the difference of of planning from North America to South America, and mainly because South America was. I mean, we were fortunate to do it in two different locations in Argentina. Um, and there were a couple different locations in Peru, like behind the coast and then in the mountains. So I, I considered that two, but on two trips compared to what North America was from starting in Alaska and, and so forth, like talk about when, when we were laying this out and what you were thinking of steps, like when you, when you laid out North America, like this is the first step and we're going to go from there compared to South America. This is the first step and we're going to go from there. Well, I think the the big thing that is, is, I mean, there's a couple factors involved. North America, we did. Let's be honest, we didn't uh, <laughs> we didn't pick the most awesome time to do that. No, one, we did not. Thanks, thanks no. to COVID. No. So, and uh, more than any other place, the difference between South America and North America is that our birds have a much more aggressive migration that happens. We have, you know, we have a freeze. It just simply eliminates water and food, which causes birds to move. Mm-hmm. So the, our birds move much, much more aggressively than than South American birds do. Um, so we had to, we had a couple factors against us, North America wise. Okay, we can't use Canada. So now where can we go? Where species diversity is more important than volume. Um, and then we knew that we were going to get handcuffed a little bit because there's birds, there's huntable species of birds in North America that are just kind of, I'll call them blah birds. You know, you don't ever go and say, well, when's the last time you bought a six pack of ruddy decoys? I yeah. mean, you know what I mean? It's not, <laughs> if you're, if we're hunting together and you chuck out two hooded mergansers, I'm impressed. <laughs> decoys. Yeah. You know, yeah. so so those are the species where, man, we're we're gonna have to get lucky on some of this. So I just went, you know, we need we needed to start as early as we can. Mm-hmm. We can't. We obviously, if we would have had, um, if we would have had Canada, being able to start in September and knock out a bunch of those species would have been awesome. September out on the Aleutian chain of islands. Um, is a little early. I figured if we waited a little bit, we would get more into the the beef of the migration, which would up our chances diversity wise. Um, especially with the some of those geese species mm-hmm. and and um, and some of those duck species. So that's really when we started. You know, we just said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Could we have gone early season Canada goose hunting? Yeah, but I figured we'd kill one of those on the road. Mm-hmm. So why waste the trip? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, started in Alaska and, and I think we scheduled it out really till about the first middle of December is when we had kind of everything scheduled out. And I don't think we really had to deviate much from that no. initial plan until, um, you know, and, and, and then the plan, we had a plan in place from that, from middle December on knowing that our season was going to uh, be done January 31st. That's when all North American were done in North America. So we kind of left that, that back end open to 
all right, what do we, where are we, what do we got to do? What do we got to go get? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then we scheduled that, that second half out. So that worked. Um, Argentina, I mean, and you look at the, the 43 North American species and look at the, the, just the sheer span, a spans of ground that we could go all the way from Alaska to Greenland, right? East yep. to West, yep. all the way from Mexico to without, uh, Canada, you know, North Dakota or uh-huh. Alaska again, you know, mm-hmm. Argentina really doesn't have that. The way the bread and butter is there. Um, you either going to go, you're going to go West into the farm country or North up to the, you know, up to the river bottom style country and into Rios. So, and it's just, those birds just don't migrate and having the ability to capitalize on getting in there on the very front side of the season. And just from simply being down there and knowing that those, the melting pot of birds that are there. Uh, yeah, I was really calm. I was really confident that we could turn around if needed to come back in a, you know, a later season for a rosy or whatever. And we can let, one of our partners down there know that, all right, here's where we're at. Just kind of the same thing we did in North America when talking with a, a Reuben or a, you know, anybody along the path. Okay. I don't need, I don't need a black deck, but I need this. Yep. Yep. Okay, cool. And so the, you and I didn't pull this off. No, it was a, it, they, they pulled it off. hundred <laughs> percent. They pulled it off. A hundred percent. The outfitters yeah. and guides that we work with, once they, once they got engaged and realized what we were trying to do, like the amount of calls, texts that we got of, Hey, how are you doing? What do you, what do you need? I've got this, like was overwhelming the help yeah, and everything. It was crazy. And it, it took a little bit for some of them. Cause especially like down in Arkansas, I still remember this. Like we were down there and I, I told the guys like hooded merganser, we needed a speck, a wood yeah. duck. And yeah, you're going through, yeah, you're going through this odd stuff. Um, and they're like, so you want to bang out some mallards? Uh, not really this morning. Maybe we just go there and we wait for a wood duck. And they're <laughs> so limit driven. They're like, we get yes. the limit today. And I'm like, yep, I'll shoot a couple green heads. But I really want to be ready for when that wood duck flies by or the hooded yeah. merganser and so forth. And that was just, it, it was funny because all the guys are like, don't we go get our limit and then we come back. We get our limit, we come back. And this way, like mm-hmm. it usually took a day or two and they're finally like, I got it. This guy does not care if he shoots his limit of greenheads. He may shoot one or two, but we're really here for a specific duck. What can we do to modify our spread and help him for if this thing flies in, how do we get it to where we can actually get a legit shot at it? Yeah. And that, that was the biggest learning curve in North America. Then where you go to Argentina, it was the same thing. Like the first couple days it was okay. We know we've got 13 species. Let's just go to town and see what we get after the first, the first two shoots. So it was just going out yeah. and shooting. And those guys mm-hmm. were like, yeah, this is, we're back after the, cause they had two seasons off for COVID down there. They had a client. So everybody's excited to get back in the field, doing what they love, getting, getting business going again. And then it was like day three. I think we were there that afternoon and it was, we were starting to get picky. And I use the word picky very sparingly because it was like, okay, we'll pass on this group. We'll pass on this group. And then you're like, oh, the yellow bills are going to do it on the left. Oh, there's a double. Oh, they're cupped already. Oh, God, that's good footage. Oh, Matt, take the one on the right. I got left. Bang, bang. Okay. Well, we're going to get picky again. We're going to get picky again. Then you let a couple groups uh, go yeah. and then you're like, uh-oh, uh-oh. 
Speckled teal on the right. They're doing it. Oh, they're locked in again. All right, we'll take these ones. So it was very limited on um, what we were, but we were being picky waiting for that. And it, it, it took those guys a second just to adjust as well of saying, okay, they don't, they don't care if they go out and get their limit in an hour or even if they get their limit, they're, they're getting specific. And it's fun to watch those guys because now they're engaged. It's like, okay. Well, you can see the, you know, the bird boys, the first get, shoot, 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 yep. shoot. And then, and then when we decide, Hey, we're let's, let's, let's just, let's look. Yep. But, and, and so we wouldn't, and you could just start to see they're like, shoot, shoot, shoot. And you wouldn't shoot. And they'd be like, okay, okay senior, shoot, shoot, shoot. Yeah. Mm, no, 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 I'm good. No. And yeah. then by about day three, they, they, they're like, yeah, I get it now. I get it. We're just waiting, <laughs> waiting for the blackhead. Yeah. All right, let's see what we get. I think you, I think you hit something right on the head too, and that was really cool to to see both in Argentina and along the my, we'll just say my pre-arrival conversations. No matter how many times I would tell guys on the, this is no, this has nothing to do with volume. Mm-hmm. This is nothing to do with volume. It's what we're here's what. Most people are calling you saying, I'm looking for the best shoot Yep. all the way down to clients contacting outfitters. And I wouldn't put it by them that says, Hey, I know there's going to be other guys around between you and I, I'll give you an extra 500 bucks if I'm on the best shoot every day. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me if that stuff happens. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't surprise me if those guides and lodge owners don't field calls like that every year from guests coming. We were polar. We were we were polar opposite of that. So for them to, you're looking for a wood duck, hooded meganser, and here we are sitting in a greenhead hole again. Okay. Um, what, for a lack of better delivery, <laughs> what part of, I don't want to shoot green. I'm looking for one duck. Oh, okay. And once they bought, once they understood that you were serious, it's almost like they didn't believe you. Like who would stand in the middle of a lake for three days around five reeds to shoot one canvas back? Yeah. Like this guy seriously is going to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not joking. That's what we're doing. We're here for one purpose and one purpose only. So yeah, it was cool to see, you know, people engage in that. And, and I had, you know, for the, for the number of places that we went. And I think that was the, that's one of the differences too, between North and South America is we always had to have in North America, we always had to have a backup plan. Yep. If it didn't happen here, we need to move here. If it didn't happen here, we needed to move here. If this one gets shut down because of COVID, we need to go over here. And so, yeah, it was a lot way more moving parts in North America than South America. By far. So explain mm. like in Argentina, you, you covered it a little bit. What what are the main waterfall areas in, in Argentina? Like break break them down. How what are what's this area got that the other one doesn't? So Asesa International Airport, which is BA's you know, international airport, that's where you arrive. It sits on the northern part of BA, which Buenos Aires sits right on the coast. Um, and so if you drive straight west of that airport, you get into the farm country. It's traditional farm country, prairie pothole, you know, very, very high water table. 
um, just North Dakota 150 years ago. And that houses all the duck species, most. Um, if you go straight north, it's like uh, the best I can equate it to would be like the Mississippi River Valley. You got two big river systems there, the Uruguay and the Paraná and the Paraná River. Um, they make up this big drain from the essentially the drain from the Amazon, mm -hmm. which dumps into the ocean. And so you get good farming, rich soil up there, but it it's more backwater style hunting, more. Um, yeah, you're going to shoot some offshoot ponds and things like that, but it's just two, they're just two different spots. I like the prairie. I like both. I mean, cripes, if a guy's going to do, you know, Argentina's got really the three bird species or the three style hunt, um, which would be Perdiz, which is an upland bird, doves, which that province is called Entrios, which the hotbed for doves used to be Cordoba. That has changed in the last five years. Those doves have all moved towards the river now. And Entherios is now getting, I mean, that is the hotbed for doves. And it's always been a, a hotbed for ducks. And you've got tremendous perdiz hunting there too. So if a guy's looking for the, you know, experience all the bird opportunities that Argentina has, you want to go north. If a guy's a dyed-in-the-wool duck hunter, you want to go west. If he's a pigeon shooter, you want to go further west. And, it, and that's a good one when people call to say, Hey, where am I? What do I want to do? It's a good one. I assume that's the first question you ask is it, do you just want to hunt? Do you want high volume ducks or do you like the variety? Do you like to hunt ducks in the morning, then do a Perdiz hunt, maybe get in doves along the way? Like, is, is that how you generally talk when people are like, I'd like to go to Argentina? Yeah. My first question would be, is this your first trip or have you been there before? What if they say, you know, they, if, what if they, what do they, what do you say if they've been there before? Yeah, they've said, you know, they'll say, yeah, I've been there dove hunting before, or I've been there duck hunting before, or I've been, you know, I think you and I talked about this growing up where we did Michigan, Minnesota, we didn't grow up with the traditions of dove hunting. So when we'll just say clients from that Northern tier that didn't grow up with the traditions of dove hunting as they do in the South, mm -hmm. um, our doves are long gone by the time the dove season even exists you know, we don't, that to us, we were grouse and duck hunters, not dove and duck hunters. And so when those people, when they think of Argentina, the first thing they probably, I would say most of them think of ducks. Now they'll go and I will, you know, I'll, through a layering of questions, you know, have you thought of uh, what type of experience are you looking for? Are you looking for the duck experience or are you looking for the dove experience? Kind of the whole thing, you know, cause usually they like Perdiz hunting also just mm. because it's over pointing dogs and there's, there's dog work involved, which can be a nice. So when you lay out that itinerary for them, they're like, yeah, that sounds super cool. I get to do three different things. I'm going to get my duck hunts, you know, and with the liberal limits of duck of ducks, you know, on a daily basis in Argentina, you know, some of those guys think, gosh, yeah, if I shoot that many ducks in a day, I'm good. Yeah. You know, so maybe, maybe, uh, may I get my duck fix in the morning? I do a little Perdiz in the afternoon or I do some doves. 
And so we'll go through that process. And then there's guys that have said, yeah, I've been down there, you know, once or twice. We did the ducks, doves, perdies. I just, I absolutely love doves and I just want to shoot doves because it's relaxing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to, you know, during the dove, during the duck season when ducks are available, which is May to August, it's the worst time to dove hunt. But your worst time to dove hunt a three hour shoot, you can still shoot two cases of shells. Yeah. So it's, you know, that's, that's a lot, yeah. I mean, you know, 500. And if, and if you really, really hate them, yes, you could squeeze a thousand in three rounds in three hours if you really hate them. But, you know, some guys, they, they want to experience the high volume stuff. You know, they want to be down there November, December, January, and really see what it's like. Right. Um, and then other guys are like, yeah, you know, I've done the dove thing. Uh, the Perdiz was fun. I experienced that. But I tell you, man, I really love duck hunting. And those guys, they tend to be kind of northern tier type fellas. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, they've done it. Cool. But now back to my roots of duck hunting and I really, really enjoy that. So that that customer would probably have a better experience headed west than he would north mm-hmm. um, just because – just because we hunt ducks twice a day there where we don't hunt ducks twice a day in um where we don't hunt ducks twice a day up north we only hunt them in the mornings yep so like and this is one that you get the question about why is argentina so and this covers for waterfall perdiz any type of bird hanging in argentina why Mm -hmm. why is it so special and and it goes back to that liberal limits and a lot of shooting there's like i don't know anywhere else in the world that you can shoot as much as you do in argentina no matter if it's for ducks what whatever you're going for doves whatever it is if you like to pull the trigger that's a spot to go agreed and i think a big thing is is for those that have been there they come home and they've been there maybe once been there Mm -hmm. twice been there there's there's no difference between i think it's the consistency of the volume that's a good one yeah it is you know what i mean the those ducks you and i uh was it our first morning second morning when we were in the blind i think you know we were dealing a bit with a full moon Mm -hmm. um the feed wasn't the desire to feed wasn't super super strong our afternoon hunts were better so did we did we bang the heck out of them that that second morning no but (laughs) we still came out with more than yeah. four, four or five trips in Michigan or Minnesota or South Dakota. Easily, easily. Four. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the consistency of that volume, a common question I get around the waterfowl hunts is, you know, when's the best time to be there? Mm-hmm. And I think we, we've covered this in other conversations, but the only thing that changes is the, the um, diversity of your bag, meaning the species. Yeah, the shoot the, I just, the I, shooting stays, I just the shoot, shooting amount basically yeah. stays the same. It's just what birds yeah. are coming in at that time. Yeah, like but, I just you know I sent you that video that was sent to me from the lodge of all those rosies that showed up you know July first, and that's one I like you, I'd love to be I there see, when they're all rosies. Bigger, bigger, oh, but there's something yeah. about them. They're like mini canvas backs to me. Like that's they are they're you fantastic. Just get, yeah, just awesome. Like I, yeah, that video they, you sent me, that'd be awesome to experience that time of year. And when they come, they come with vengeance and they, yeah, they, it reminds me of, you know, a few of those little 
snippets I got in my early waterfowling career of late, late, like last big, big water open bluebill golden eye shoots where like you could light the decoys on fire and you're still going to shoot as many as you want uh-huh. at 15 yards. Like the snow's grow, the snow is cranking. It reminds me, they remind me of really, 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 really souped up eider hunting agreement. <laughs> yeah, just that gets me Constant. going. That's me going just thinking about it. Like think of some of those eider shoots that we had in Greenland, oh. and and take that without the driving snow and triple the number of birds and it's just constant you know our shoots would last for 15 20 minutes of the constant Uh movement every one of them come into the decoys to in argentina this constant attack on the decoys by the rosy bill will last for two hours that's insane they're not going to let yeah. you do it for two hours, but if you sat there, it'll happen until noon. Mm. Mm. And you saw the number of oh. birds coming out of that literally uh, a high water spot in the middle yeah, of the field. I mean, insane. it's yeah, it was crazy. So well, that's the only thing that changes is that diversity there. So let's move on to to Peru. Now, this is one you didn't get to join on, but you set everything up. So in Peru, to they're really and first of all, there's seven different species of, of birds in Peru, and there are two distinct areas to hunt. It's along the coast, which if you think about the, the coastline of Peru, it's long. So there's lots of different coastlines or lots of different water pockets along the coast of Peru that you can hunt. Angelo down there does a great job because he normally does not hunt the same pond more than twice a season. So along along that coast, he's got so many different areas with with birds tucked away so when you're hunting the coast normally that pond most of the time has only been hunted once and sometimes like the ones we hunted we were he'd had groups in before us but we were the first ones there for that season and he's like we'll probably be the only ones here for this season because he can just keep driving you down along the coast and and when i say drives this isn't 10 to 15 minute drives these are sometimes like when we started in northern peru I think it was by the time it was all over, it was about eight hours that we drove from northern Peru down to southern Peru and we hunted the coastline along the way. And as I understand it, you know, you're going from these marshes. First and foremost, well, I, and I, I know, I think I know the answer to this, but I want to ask it. Were they brackish water or was it fresh water? Brackish. Well, some, okay, no, so I take that back. Some were brackish, depends on, and some were brackish, some were fresh. Like I remember distinctly okay. hunting, hunting both. Um, and it's it's one of those things if like the knob bill so specific he's got a he's got an area just i mean they don't they don't migrate so those knob bills are very specific on where they're at they like to sit on big water and of course they're right smack dab in the middle um so if you're going after a knob bill that's one to plan plan some time there because it, it does take a little bit of luck on on how you get those cuz they they're literally smack dab in the middle of a couple mile lake like you'll glass them up and be like holy smokes those things are awesome they're never flying over the over the shore we got lucky we set up on a on a little peninsula that went out there we found the pinch point um caught a large group of them flying first thing in the morning um that's- and so when you when you would go from essentially let's just take this eight hour stretch of marsh 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 or marsh marsh is there much water besides the ocean in between those two marshes there's not there's there's hardly See, that's any- why they must concentrate oh that, they huh? there's not at all like in 
and how Angela finds them, he used uh, uh, Google Earth and just sees because marshes change every year. He'll just go along the coast, find a marsh area, go in there and scout it and see what's there. Like I remember the last area we hunted before we went to the mountains, that's how he had found it. He went in there and scouted and been like, holy smokes, there's 7,000 cinnamon teal in here. Yeah. And there are 7,000 cinnamon teal in there is what there were. So you go in there and these birds have <laughs> never been hunted ever. And they just bounce back and forth. So we put dad over here on the water and I'd be over here. And those things would just bounce back and forth for an hour and a half, just clouds of cinnamon teal. And, and completely, uh, a, com- <laughs> a completely different style of hunting. Again, this is what uh, we were talking about earlier in our conversation is you've got the resource. Mm-hmm but a completely different hunt presentation Yep. because we, we, we don't need to be there maybe in the black, get the decoy spread, which is typical of what somebody traveling, Hey, I'm going on a duck hunt. That's what we think. Yep. Um, I think we learned, we saw that same kind of approach when we went to Greenland, they hunt them different than we do. Mm-hmm. And so I would guess that in Peru, yeah, you're looking out there and you've got a bazillion of whatever, on this particular marsh seeing them and shooting them is two totally different games if you were if you were going to if this was a typical destination where we took you know a group of four every three days on this particular marsh it wouldn't take those birds long to figure that out not at all if you didn't hunt them properly yep not at all that, and, and I think that's why it, it wor- really works good with what he does. He hunts it once or twice a season. Those birds have mm-hmm. no idea because they're not, they're not really, yeah. they're not really migrating anywhere. There's no reason for them to migrate. Like the coldest it gets is 45. And it, it's, so are you saying those birds are resident down there to, well, a, to they, an extent? To an extent. They bounce along that coast, but they don't, they don't move like you think North America. They're moving from uh, um, Northern Canada, Alaska, all the way down to Mexico. Because there's, there's yeah. no reason. They've got all the food and they've got the climate that they need just to stay there all year. I was going to say they don't get the extremes of both sides of the climate. Nope. And the food source is there. And the food source is right there. And there's, there's no pressure. Like there's some, there's some local hunters that, that do kind of like the ditch dive approach. But other than that, I mean, there's, there's not massive hunters out there that are going after these birds. So they get pretty comfortable. And so, so along the coast, I mean, you got that specialty knob bill, but then after that, in one of the places, like you told me this before you go there, probably the place to go after, if you want to go and just shoot lots and lots and lots and lots of cinnamon teal, that's the place mm-hmm. to go. Highest, de- highest oh, density yeah. in the world is, is right there along the coast of Peru. So you do get in some yellow bills, Bahama pintails, like you get into some of those, but man, 98% of the birds along the coast are cinnamon teal. And, and you've seen me in the blind when a cinnamon teal drake comes flying by and completely lose it. So I like that first <laughs> time out there, I'm like, say. it's cinnamon, cinnamon. They're all cinnamons. Every single group's a cinnamon, a group of 50 yeah. cinnamon coming in right now. Like it, like that gets cinnamon. me excited seeing a cinnamon teal. So like we did, we did that coast, but why does everybody really go to Peru? Yes. To experience that coast, but they really want to hunt those birds up in the mountains. Oh yeah. Those Andean geese. And- crested duck like the puna teal yeah. um giant, that crested duck is cool giant coot andean ruddy duck like they like there's some cool species up there so how this how this hunt normally goes and, and you know this but you normally start along the coast hunt two or three days along the coast get to experience the culture of peru which is which is great like the one thing i didn't have time for is 
obviously, you know, my schedule, I wish I could have stayed another five days, brought the family down, went to Machu Picchu and, and done that part. Like that was the part of Peru. I didn't, mm-hmm. didn't get to experience how it does hunt along the coast normally leads up for the, the grand finale, which is going up to hunt in the mountains. Now here's what I will say to everybody. The mountain hunt, we hunted, we started hunting at 14.5, hunted above 15.5 the majority of the time. That is a long ways up for a dude that lives in Michigan, about 300 feet off sea level. And you're hunting. So what the, do you start at? You're hunting, well, you, you hunt the coast of Peru, which is right down to the ocean. So you're like, seven, yeah, 75 <laughs> feet above sea level is where you're hunting. And there's nowhere, there's nowhere to stay up in the mountain. So you can stay at Angela's cabin usually, which is at like, I think it's 8,900 feet. Usually stay there one night. So the acclimation part to altitude is what gets most people because it's up so fast and down so fast. That's the one thing I can say. If you're if, if you're looking at doing this prep trip, there's some altitude medication that you can take. And obviously like if you live in Colorado at 9,000 feet, you're going to be more more ready for it than, than somebody that lives in Michigan at 300 feet. That's the, that's the only thing that will get you on this trip is altitude. Just do your best to prepare for that part. So when we went up, and of course I, I did the complete wrong thing, but we went up there and, and hunted the coast, looking forward to getting in the mountains. And Angelo keeps telling me, cause I'm like, man, we only got two days. And he's like, that's plenty of time. There are lots of birds. And like, I've heard this after doing the North America waterfall slam and then getting into Argentina don't tell me again that don't worry about the time thing. There are plenty of birds. I've heard that 7,000 times. Okay. I always, yeah. I always worry because then all of a sudden something happens and I get that, man, they were here last week. They were stacked in here. So yeah, I, or like, I, or I sure would like an extra day. Yeah. That so that, that just, work just a, a little bit of, a little bit of cushion just to say something happens. So we get, we're heading up there and I kid you not like you're steep up. I mean, driving up the Andes and then all of a sudden you hit about 14, five and it starts to flatten out a little bit. And if you think between 14.5 and 15,500, it basically flattens out and there are lakes all over on top of the mountains. I mean, all over. Each of these little lakes, they have streams running to them. Almost every lake has ducks on it. And then there's streams with ducks going through and it just depends what's where. Angel's right. They're, they're, all the birds are everywhere. But here's what happens. You're at 14.5. We spotted, I think we spotted crested ducks right away. They were in a bad spot. So we're out glassing. And how all this hunting happens on, on top of the mountain, it's all spot and stock. There's no setting up decoys. There's none of that because they're all in pairs and, and so forth. So how they do all the hunting, it's all spot and stock. So I knew this they're going very spread out. Yep, very spread out. I knew this going in. I'm a spot and stock jump shooter from back in the day. Okay, no, nothing gets me excited like, like uh, getting a good old ditch kick going on here and getting some birds in the air. So he told me that, and I'm like, listen, don't worry. I, I've done that my whole life. I love it. I'm familiar. I'm very familiar with this. <laughs> we, can, we can rock and roll. You don't need to fill me in on any of the details. I got this one. But we get up there, and we glass-crested ducks, and then all of a sudden, like, there's a lake right next to it. We look, and there's a pair of Indian geese. And I'm like, this is, this is what I came for. Like, I've, I've read on hunting Indian geese for years and all of a sudden the first time on top of the mountain there's there's a pair of any geese and angel's like they're a little bit far off we can probably try to find some other ones and i'm like nope this is the only pair of indian geese on this mountain that is what my mind is telling me we are going to go after them now my my body hadn't told me yet that i'm at fourteen thousand five hundred and six hours ago i was at 300 that's what my body hadn't (laughs) told me yet so i felt like superman still 
So we went and I'm spotting and stalking, crawling. First one, they, they fly off the, the tundra up there and they land on the lake and it's actually a perfect spot. They tuck right over the corner. So I'm able to belly crawl, Lee's right behind me. I jump up, do a couple steps. They, they jump up, I dust the drake. The other hen circles around, lands on the other side of the lake. The, the, the goose is, that I hit is floating to the other side. So Angela's got a pair of waders. He grabs his pair of waders. He's like, you walk around over here. Maybe there's a chance when I grab the other one that the, the second goose flies away. So he's walking over there to get it. Lo and behold, that second goose flies right at us. I mean, directly at us. I shoot it at 12 yards in self-defense. Mm-hmm. But during that, I've, I had to run a little bit to get there in time and do this. And like again, at this time, and I noticed in the video, I'm heavily winded. Like I didn't catch it when I was doing it, but this time I'm, and then we did, and then we did. And so we continue on that day and it really hit me like two hours later is that, holy smokes, I did way too much movement, too fast, got my heart rate going at high elevation. So now all of a sudden you're starting to get the the effects of altitude sickness and we continue on and see what we, we got all of them that first day, except for the punateel and the ruddy duck. The ruddy duck was not going to be the hardest one because we saw hundreds of ruddy ducks. Seemed like every every lake there was a ruddy duck who was just finding the right one. The punateel was going to be going to be the tricky one. So we he Angela tries to get us to his his punateel honey hole, which is up in the mountain a couple a couple hours. So we push it, try to get there, don't get there. Just before, a little higher. Just a little higher. Everything's just <laughs> a little bit higher. We try to get there before dark. Don't make it. So now we turn around, but what it did is it added two more hours for us to be up on top of the mountain. At this point, all of us, except for Angela, who's used to the elevation, are starting to feel it pretty good. Justin ended up throwing up, which kind of made my day. I was, I was kind of blacking in and out. We got down to Angelo's cabin, got everything under control finally that night, ate there. Going back up the next morning, had Punateel and Ruddy Duck were the two. Lo and behold, we cruised through the same area as we did the first day. Now you're passing, and you're like, holy smokes, there are Indian geese everywhere. Look at that. There's 22 of them on this lake. There's two over there. There's, and you're starting to see there's crested duck over here. And you're like, holy smokes, there's stuff stuff everywhere. And we pull up to a spot, and there's one Punateel right there. And it's in the perfect spot. And you're like, oh, man, this is going to be a good day. Get the Punateel, and now it's down to the ruddy duck and and cruised on a little bit more, found a spot to where they were close to shore and, and got a Drake ruddy duck. And that was it. Like it was, Angela was spot on. They're, they're literally birds over there. What you have to be prepared for in that, in that mountain is the altitude. And it's mm-hmm. so tricky because you leave from sea level and get up to high elevation yeah. so quickly. That's where I'm like, and I can't believe I didn't, I didn't take the altitude medication. I should have been on it a couple of days before. I think it would have, would have helped the whole experience. But like, but going even even going up that fast, it's just it's so still, cool. you still probably would have just felt a little bit of oh it, yeah but maybe not as the headache and the you know the you still would have your body I'm sure just because yeah. that's quick. But like I I say Peru like I say it's not for everybody. Well, first of all, Angelo can only only take I think he takes ten or twelve groups a year, but it's not for everybody. But if you're looking for one of the most unique waterfall hunts in the world like i can think of some other ones like greenland comes to mind um there's probably some stuff in azerbaijan like there's certain spots like that are that are unique like peru is definitely at the top of uniqueness being able to hunt along the coast seeing that amount of cinnamon teal and then being able to get up in the mountains i mean it's the only where there's nowhere else you're hunting indian geese indian ruddy duck crested like you're not hunting those ducks anywhere else besides right there like yeah. after getting down and having a chance to think about it, I'm like, man, what an awesome experience 
of being able to go up in the mountains over there and hunt hunt waterfall like that like that's one of those those memories that's gonna gonna stick with me and I always like a grand finale like you know in the in the waterfall slam of finish it in Greenland with a king after what it took to get Mm -hmm. there like that was that's mm-hmm. what movies are made of is finish it like that and this one yeah. being able to finish up in the up in the andes like the only thing that would have made is if you know the first bird up there i shot wasn't the indian goose it was the last one but like just being able to finish up there and and the scenery and and like it's just amazing like that was it was a great way to end the south america waterfall slam another one in the books um we're booking great areas in argentina and peru and now it's I guess we'll, I'll give a little bit of a, a teaser. So obviously uh, next year we're going to have something else going on, and, and right now we're kicking around the South Pacific Slam. So that's uh, Australia and New Zealand, um, a bunch of unique birds over there. Can't wait to can't wait to start to plan. And you hear Matt quiet because he's like, man, I, I literally just finished another one, and now Mark's got me planning on the next one. I just like a little bit of time off. Oh, no, <laughs> that's – it's all that's good. I, you know, I, I've been, I have hunted uh, birds in, in um, New Zealand, and there's some cool species down there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of common stuff down there too. I mean, you shoot honkers and mallards and that type of stuff. But you know, opportunities to take black swan and paradise ducks and some of that other stuff, they're they're pretty cool. I mean, think the about that. Uh, the Australia thing is what is really intriguing to me i mean i just a australia as a whole is just crazy unique and uh you just got a chance to experience that on the big game side of thing so yeah it'll be interesting going back chasing birds i mean think about I it i might have to join you on that one. Oh, you're more than welcome a black swan like i, I don't know if it gets much better than that a, a black swan yeah. now it will be interesting to, to fly all the way over there and get that first green head out of the way Happy, yeah. happy, happy I had 20-some hours. And all of a sudden, yeah. ring, ring, ring. You're like, what? Can I, get, can I get a couple of green heads and some, and some Canadians, please? It would be yeah, perfect if we could just start the trip off of that. My first trip ever to New Zealand uh, back in the early two, you know, 2000s, um, I hunted with uh, – I can't remember if he was like the president of – Ducks Unlimited or wanted to be the president. There was a tie to the New Zealand Ducks Unlimited. I don't know if it was like just starting or what, but his private farm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, we shot, we shot honkers and greenheads <laughs> and some parries too. It was pretty cool. You're like, perfect. Like, yeah. Got it. Setting up in the middle of a, of a cow pasture. That's where they were feeding. That was pretty neat. Awesome. Well, Matt, as always, I know these, uh, I try to target an hour. All of a sudden we're at 90 minutes, but that that's kind of what happens when we start talking. So, yeah, <laughs> no, it's all good. And well, here's to, uh, yeah, here's to some more cool stuff. More, more adventures coming and, more and adventure. Yeah. Listen, listeners, if you've got questions on waterfall hunting, North America, Argentina, basically anywhere in the world. Um, and, you usually message me. I'll be the first one to pass you on to Matt because that guy knows about a thousand times more than I do. Oh, it's, yeah, it's been fun, and it's gonna continue to continue to be fun. But yeah. we're not gonna do it, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Yeah. All right. Take care, Mark. Thanks.
Thank you everyone out there for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.